I spoke yesterday with Ronnie Carini, West Papuan activist now living and working in Australia. The difficulty of West Papuans in the diaspora, whether it's in Australia or elsewhere, getting this issue on the agenda. I remember many years ago people saying that West Papua was a forgotten East Timor and it seems to me, going by the media, that it is still a forgotten East Timor. Would you agree with that? I certainly echo the, those views, especially um, its isolation, the lack of publicity around it, and information coming out, uh, human rights or NGO going in. So it certainly echoes that view of um, it is a forgotten estimo. How difficult is it now for outsiders to get in? It is very difficult. When Suharto regime, their military was brutal in its approach, but in some ways, the tracking down of key prominent leaders were not that obvious because of the hat. it takes them a while to really figure out and then crossing down on the, the network, the movement. That was like in the 80s where we see a lot of that, but yeah, they couldn't even stop mass mobilization in some respect up until early 2000s and 2010. But yeah, in the last, certainly last 10 years, it is very difficult in terms of prominent leaders and speaking of now with the technology, knowing the position of uh, and accessing or monitoring messages and key, especially for key prominent leaders, it makes it difficult for transaction of information or organizing a meeting, get together, even just to talk on the phone, the, the internet and phone shutdown is occurrence, like it happens regularly. And if they plan for deployment, and this is just last week, over 450 special elite um, troops coming from outside of Papua, mostly from Maluku, Ache, have been deployed. Just on the same day when the announcement was made and the, the deployment was made, internet shut down in Papua for several hours. We were lucky um, in diaspora outside. I was able to read the media, national media in Indonesia, and then sharing that and information goes back around into Papua later night or the next day that people heard that, oh, yes, face this. So transaction of information difficult, even just to organize on the ground and the forceful dispersal of any get-together. And so that makes it more difficult. So the online and offline presence of the security monitoring has contributed to this difficulty. When you're thinking about villages or areas in Papua, are they surrounded by soldiers or are the soldiers nearby? Yes, they are. And the context that surrounds this, the presence of the military is that they, in late September, the government announced this new approach to establish military strategic command, or in Bahasa, it's called Kobag Wilhan. And there are three locations, in Riau, in Balikpapan, and then in Biak, West Papua. For West Papua, there are three 
combined military and police, the Navy, the Air Force, and the infantry, the Army. This infantry, with the special autonomy being revisited in July, the security forces had given more duties in terms of administrative role or duties, and that means they are now mandated to carry out um, COVID precautions and visiting villages and health centers, and even um, for education, going into classroom and teaching. So one can imagine in terms of the trauma and the psychology of young people, of kids and children, and even civilians, that you see military with full uniform and with artilleries on, on them carrying around and carrying out civic duties. So the trauma that added to that and the distrust, even just for COVID um, vaccination, people are reluctant to even receive any of this vaccination um, rollout that is carried out by the security forces. And so, yes, certainly their presence is very much in remote areas as well. But one thing that we are not hearing a lot is the operation, the military operation, the aerial bombing, and as well as the internally displaced peoples that have been already scattered away from villages into jungles or into nearby um, districts. And that's the thing that um, we haven't really verified or confirmed. But to date, in the central highlands, in Ilaga, Nduga, and near Wamena, this is where near the Freeport area as well, up in the central highlands, it's recorded, local authorities have recorded over 50,000 um, internally displaced persons, children, women, men have already disappeared in you know, their the village and they can't go back. So this is the operation. But when Jakarta presents itself, it's more around carrying out the administrative duties. Are you saying that they're under the control of the Indonesian military, those people in the highlands? Yeah, no, certainly in West Papua. It's not just in the highlands, but in West Papua, it's the martial law being enforced. The every day that people walk and they're monitoring and all this. But it's just that it hasn't been opened up so that formal uh, investigation or observation of like the real situation on the ground. Even online, um, people share information of what is happening literally around their surroundings. The bots and troll quickly trying to um, suppress the information. And even few commentators and journalists within this region, kind of like, yeah, have verified information and putting it out there. Jakarta was using this um, bot quickly disqualify any of this verified information. As last week, the Guardian wrote about an like, yeah, um, Australian trained Indonesian military, um, which carried out those training to, uh, against peaceful activists in Merauke. Jakarta quickly dismissed that. It, it dismissed that even online bots came out and just creating a different narrative. How long do you believe or do you know that Australia has been cooperating with Indonesia, training those troops? Both sides of the government have played a big role in uh, maintaining the status quo. They both are, um, are accountable. Bloods of West Papuans are on both sides of the government with the push of like Indonesia's liberation struggle back 
in the 40s up to 50s and maintaining that with the view of the special autonomy is the way forward. Um, but we're not seeing that improving on the ground. It's also the question of um, the taxpayers' money that are being used for training and funding and aiding the Indonesian death fund that are being used as well against peaceful, peaceful activists. But um, with now, there's uh, some conversations within the parliament around this Magnitsky law to be enforced, and it's, it's coming into establishment like with itself with accountability and Australia's role and, you know, on human rights, there is a section there. So if that is one way to really hold Australia um, accountable um, on its uh, foreign bilateral in places that has also contributed to atrocities and human rights situation, then this is the moment to really, um, in Australia, to really campaign around that so that Australia's bilateral is not at the expense of human rights or Papuan lives, which with the training and aiding of the Indonesian military or security forces. For those who didn't see the article in The Guardian, can you talk more about that Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation? The Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement program came at the, uh, at the back of um, the Bali bombing. The Australian Federal Police uh, worked closely with the Indonesian um, terrorism unit called Detachment 88, basically to train and, yeah, and fund this um, unit to be fully equipped and, um, yeah, for any of the anti-terrorism um, acts in Indonesia. 2004, uh, one of the early stories that came out in, in June 24 was um, through the ABC 730 report of one of the Papua prominent leader Makotabuni in a broad daylight was assassinated. Footages and evidence of um, the detachment 88 uh, present were carried out um, at the time. And so questions were raised back here in the parliament of the training of this specific detachment 88. Followed on from 2012, nothing, no actions have really um, go further to get you know, someone accountable for that. And the Guardian story recently came out it's basically of the same um, scenario that we are hearing and many Papuans, um, activists, human rights advocates have been talking about that the funding and the training and the aiding of the Indonesian security forces at large so far is that Australia is not taking any responsibility or accountability on some of these programs and training um, despite the what's really happening when it comes to the those trainings are used to combat against anti-racism uh, or self-determination advocate in West Papua. And so this is where we see um, the hypocrisy around the, especially in the case of West Papua with this training that Australia is giving to Indonesia. And that's why when the story came out as well, we have not here to date, um, anyone really making comments or accountable for this? And as back to your first um, question, that is this very an isolated issue and very sensitive as well um, in Canberra around West Papua. Um, we know that spokesperson for the Greens, Senator Janet Rice, has uh, made um, a response 
uh, pleading to uh, the government around after that story came out in the Guardian. And yes, it's just we are continuing to uh, find different avenues to bring this issue to the parliament to make sure that accountability is met when Australia continues to train and fund the Indonesian security forces. Do we know if Indonesians are also brought here to Australia to be trained? There is a campaign um, called Make West Papua Safe. They are looking into this um, specific area where where Indonesian military being brought out here and being trained. And yes, they certainly are. And it's not only just the security, but it's also within the Australian institutions, um, universities in Canberra at ANU or in Melbourne University or Deakin, where they see or they can sense that there is some focus on issues that relating to West Papua, they will install key of their operatives, I'd say. And also the military training, it's an ongoing with um, geopolitics and strategic interests. Now, Indonesia play a big role within the trade war between US and uh, China, the geopolitics and the Indo-Pacific framing. Australia sees Indonesia as a closer ally to its strategic interests more than the human rights that is now happening on the ground. So the training of the Indonesian military would is, is and yeah will be critical in that regard. Do you have any more news of people being arrested now that all the freedom fighters have been labelled as terrorists? Well, last night at 6.30 p.m., the chairman of the, um, the Alliance of Independent Journalists, the Papua uh, branch, his vehicle was smashed into, like his windshield of his car was smashed right into. And this was just like early in June, senior journalist, a Papuan journalist, Victor Mambo, vehicle um, got smashed into at early hours in the morning as well. These are the public kind of like a yeah, threat being made on journalists. Now with the case of the Papuan activists, prominent ones, they have no chance of really moving around publicly. Every move is, they have to calculate it very well. Even church leaders travel, you know, every day back and forth from home to work or they've been accompanied with motorcycles. So it's like dead people have been watched and monitored of their movement, of where they are. Early last month, the church leaders were going to launch a book in the church, the military came and took away any books of that was displayed and told them not to go more than 30 minutes of that meeting or that launch. The reality on the ground is that, as I said, it's a martial law being enforced and the communication barriers and the realities of safety and security become everyday consciousness of Papuan activists. So even everyone, everyday Leaving that they have to turn around to make sure that they're not being followed. Are human rights defenders also being targeted? Yes, Amnesty International, uh, Amnesty Indonesia, have been finding very difficult to collect data on the ground as well. Even the Human Rights Commission, Papua um, branch, where now they are advocating on behalf of Victor Yemo, 
It's been three months since Victor Yemo, who is a West Papuan civil resistance leader, he was arrested on the 9th of May, and he has been placed in solitary confinement with no access to legal aid, no access to family, not even food or medical um, treatment. And on Friday, after three months, the human rights advocate managed to secure our time. The reason why they can go in and meet is because the court wants to start file the the cases against Victor Yemo, so he needs some legal representation. And so that was the first time that this um, that they were able to go into the Marco Brimo one. That's the mobile brigade uh, prison. And so Victor Yemo and the photo that has now gone viral since um, the weekend, we could see the changes. His his physical appearance is seriously worrying. It demonstrates that his health is not good, and the condition that he lives or he they placed him doesn't help him. So now there's an increased box around. Um, one is for the legal advocates or human rights defenders to be able to have some access and advocate on Victor Yemo's behalf, but at the same time, broader um, campaign that he has to be taken out from this solitary confinement to a proper cell. But uh, the flip side to it is that if this becomes a campaign on big noise that we're putting out now to free Victor Yemo, then that means they will take him away from Papua to another island like in uh, like the Bali Papan 7 in Kalimantan. And then that means that we won't, or the human rights defenders won't have any access to represent Victor Yemo. And with him, there's also other political prisoners throughout the Papua that are being left there for months. And so, yeah, the role of human rights defenders and advocates on the ground has been difficult in terms of making representation on cases, and as the case of Victor Yemo has been difficult. Is it known how many other people are in the similar situation? There'll be at least almost 20, um, but not more than that. Um, there's um, several in Merauke, in Wamena, in Fakfak, and then Sorong, a couple in Manokwari, and then, of course, with Victor Yemo's case. And then there were few in parts of Indonesia, in Jakarta, because the students, um, when they were detained for rally, uh, like an anti-racism rally that have been held. So, yeah, it's scattered around. I haven't got a, a clear exact numbers, but not more than 20. Earlier on, you spoke about what was like under Sahato. Can you compare what is happening to these activists to what happened to the people under Sahato? Under Sohato, the policies were not very brutal, but the military uh, operation was evident there. With current administration, the loss is so unjust, very racist um, against Papuans. Um, so they making it much harder that even provincial government, even the customary council are monitored. Everything they say, everything they do has to be according to the central government guidelines. 
So, for example, this month, August, from the 1st of August till the 31st, um, the governor of Papua province, Lucas Enembe, announced prior to August that the province will have to go on a lockdown for one month because of increasing COVID cases every day. But Jakarta responded in Jakarta through the Minister of um, Home Affairs, saying that that governor should not make that call for lockdown. Everywhere in Indonesia, there is no lockdown. So Papua has to go on a level, different stages, and with some restrictive movements or restrictions on movement of people. That's one example. Another example was with the special economy law that was um, passed on the 15th of July. According to the autonomy law itself, any proposal or any changes have to be done in a manner that the indigenous representation or the representative body through the local government and the district and the Papuan customary assembly will do some consultation and then get a collective voice and then come to Jakarta and then they'll present that and Jakarta through the legislative council will make those um, amendments and then um, adjusted with the special autonomy. That never happened. No, even the very article 77 in the special autonomy law that gave the mandate for the Papuan Indigenous Assembly Council to make those recommendations, their recommendation was invalid. So Jakarta made the unilateral decision and came up with a version of what they deemed or fit for Papua, which is expansion of two provinces into five provinces and more uh, breakup of districts and villages, um, districts with the capacity of 10,000 residents everywhere. So this means that it is a green light for trans migrants to be coming in to meet that criteria or that amount of um, 10,000 residents per district. And this is not coming from Papua, so Jakarta is making the decision. And secondly, is that what they're doing, it is, it's doomed to be failed, where they create a, a committee calling it a makeup of um, indigenous Papuans to implement some of the programs that Jakarta wants them to carry out. So these are just yeah, the two examples of cases that we're seeing that, yeah, Jakarta, um, like looking at the policies that are being enforced, uh, made unilaterally and imposed on Papuans, even those who are in the um, system, to carry it out in the interest of Jakarta. Where are you getting your support from, Ronnie? Because You've got to look at the Australian government does nothing, well, does worse than nothing. Who can you rely on? The people, um, especially, you know, even here in Australia, it's uh, the ordinary citizens and building alliance and partnerships and solidarity. And that goes out throughout the city with uh, solidarity network and partners who are applying pressure to respect, like the, the respective governments in the region. Thus far, with the call on um, UN investigation or a special envoy to go into Papua, um, that's been championed by Vanuatu as well as the Pacific Island Forum, the communique. So there's a 
responsibility from the secretariat of the island forum, which Australia and New Zealand are a party to this agreement. The push will be from that angle. We have gained more support in the Europe and the ACP bloc, which makes up of um, 79 members, including the Pacific, to call on that. So that's where we kind of like uh, continue to lobby in that space to kind of like uh, adding more voice or getting the support to, to get the UN Special Rapporteur and boy into the region. And with the COVID that has been slowing things down a bit, that's the support. But also the other support is where Vanuatu as a, as a nation itself um, championing on this self-determination issue, wherever are represented at the intergovernmental spaces. Thank you so much, Jen. I've been speaking with Ronnie Karini, West Papuan activist, now living in Canberra. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. Once again, the failure of US foreign policy is there for all to see, but it's the people left behind who suffer. I spoke yesterday with Dr Tim Anderson about Afghanistan in 2021 and made the point, is the US leaving the people to the monster they created many years ago or are they really not leaving? Yes and no. Um, it's um, withdrawing as part of a, I believe, a regional plan that they have, but it's trying to keep its um, hand in there and its proxies in there, basically. So it's trying to do something like what the US did in Indochina in the 70s, which was called the Guam Doctrine. They would withdraw because they were being defeated without admitting defeat and trying to pretend that their proxies would carry on with their objectives. How strong are those proxies? Not very strong. I mean, they rely on typically their permanent allies there, Israel, the Saudis, Turkey to some extent, uh, and then they have what you call the irregular groups or the terrorist groups like ISIS, which they've implanted in Afghanistan. 
the MEK, the, the sort of cult from Iran, which is now based in Albania, which, which they use against Iran. So they've got militia like ISIS and the MEK and some others to try and destabilise the country because they certainly don't want to see new power blocks arising. That's their biggest phobia, that there's going to be good relationships between neighbours and there'll be an alliance formed in the Middle East, but also between the Middle Eastern countries and China and Russia. But of course, that's precisely what's gradually happening. Who does the Taliban have on their side, so to speak, to counter all of that? Well, principally the Pakistani Secret Service, basically. That's been their main support and where they came from in many respects, basically. So there's this complicated relationship that the US has with Pakistan, which in some respects was supposedly aligned to the British earlier as as some sort of counterweight against relationship India had with the Soviet Union. But nevertheless, the Taliban had its birth effectively in, in Pakistan and the military, I mean, in Pakistan and, and, the, and the secret service there. With Iran, they have some on the other side. The Taliban have reasonable relationships, but Iran is not very enthusiastic about them because they, the Taliban have attacked persecuted minorities and minority Shia, for example, in Afghanistan. So, But nevertheless, you can see now that there's some new relationships sort of emerging between China and the Taliban and uh, Iran and the Taliban and certainly that relationship with Pakistan is a long-standing one. When we first heard about the Taliban 20 more years ago, they were students and followers. Who are Mm. they now? Well, that's what the word Taliban means. It means students, basically. But they were were students, a group which grew up in the context of that... um, you know, the multiple interventions of that time, basically. Apparently, they've changed. Uh, Apparently, of course, they've endured 20 years of occupation. It's an incredible feat, really. And one thing you have to admit about them is that they are Indigenous. They are Afghan people, although they have support, strong support from their eastern neighbour there. There are some other forces in Afghanistan. It's not totally clear the Taliban will take over everything. I'm, I'm sure that Iran, for example, would like to see more of a coalition with some of the other groups that are going to be rather excluded from full Taliban government. But um, nevertheless, um, it's in some respects, it's back to 20 years before, but in other respects, it's a new scenario because of the new regional relationships. What are the prizes for Afghanistan or from Afghanistan in terms of resources? It's not strictly about resources in Afghanistan. I think it's always been a geostrategic thing. In terms of the U.S., their great obsession is the links between China and West Asia and China and Europe, and China and Russia and Europe. So Afghanistan, like Syria, is one of these crossroads countries. Of course, it's linked into the oil-rich region, basically, but it's not simply about an extraction process. I mean, fairly recently, the former chief of staff to Colin Powell, Lawrence Wilkerson, said that whatever the motives were for the invasion in 2001, the US has an interest now in Afghanistan in terms of, one, the containment of China, two, keeping on the borders of Iran and trying to destabilise Iran, playing a, a much stronger role in the region. So there, there is always this geostrategy in the back of the minds of the Pentagon and the deep state in the US. How long can they keep on bombing the place? Like I said, I believe that they're trying to put a good face on the withdrawal to show 
that they haven't really been defeated. They aren't being really driven out with their tail between their legs. But you know, some of us remember Vietnam in 1975, where they was it was slash and burn as they left basically. But they they certainly don't know how to accept defeat, and they won't admit defeat. But um, I think the current bombing is a lot to do with that trying to pretend that they are really not abandoning um, the people, their so-called allies or the collaborators who worked with the, the foreign occupation against their own country. We saw the same thing with Vietnam too. There was a huge rush back at that time and there was a huge debate. I don't know if you remember it, Chan, but in the late 70s, you know, about the immigration of Vietnamese people who collaborated with the with the US occupation in Vietnam. And we've got a very similar thing going on with Afghanistan now. When you look at the economy of Afghanistan now and things like education, health for the people, what's the situation as you see it? Well, it's been appalling, really. I mean, they, they have, the slogan of a NATO occupation was something to do with the, the rights of women and girls was a very cynical, shallow slogan. There was at one stage there, I think it was about 10 years ago, where the maternal mortality in Afghanistan was the worst in the world, the worst in the world. In other words, the occupation had some medical facilities in Kabul, in the capital, and some other parts, but basically most of the the women in childbirth in Afghanistan in rural areas had no none of that uh, none of those facilities and it's not a huge amount better now it's still near the bottom ranking of countries in terms of some basic indicators like maternal and infant mortality and it's not surprising you don't find any colonized occupied country making great advances in education and and health it's not rocket science the british talked about this in india that they were you know there to protect widows from being burned on funeral pies, which was a very rare practice 100 years ago. But in fact, the education of Indian people under the British Raj did not advance. It didn't advance until India got its independence. And I think you'll find the same sort of thing there. Of course, you've got a new set of struggles about how that the, the nature of that education, under it, depending on to what extent it's a backward Islamic regime or there are some progressive elements there because you, you can, I think people in the West have a very uh, unreconstructed, simplistic view of Islamic regimes. In Iran, for example, education of boys and girls at about equal rate has advanced incredibly since the, uh, since the revolution 43, 42 years ago, whereas the Taliban, of course, didn't have the same sort of track record there. Is there going to be a coalition government in Afghanistan? Not clear, but I think that it's very clear that the, uh, as an occupied country, there were very few real strong advances in, in the country. And of course, as Malaloy Joya said, when she came to Australia some years ago, remember she was a young woman who was in the first, one of the first post-invasion Afghan government. She said, at first we had one enemy, the Taliban. Now we've got three enemies. We've got the warlords, we've got the, the US, and we've got the Taliban. So things simplify to some extent when the foreign occupation will be gone. Is it also simplistic to say that the US is leaving the people to the monster they created? Well, to some extent that's true because they've distorted what could be a natural politics of the country, as does every colonial rule or every military occupation. There are huge distortions there and there are going to be scores to settle and so on. That's no doubt the case. It happened in Vietnam also. There's some truth in that. You've mentioned Iran there. The economy's in dire straits and 
they're battling on many fronts, especially with Israel, and now we have the accusation of the drone attack on the oil tanker. What's your opinion of that? It's part of this hybrid war that's going on. I think it's not exactly true to say that Iran's economy is in dire straits. It is under a lot of pressure. It has been under a lot of pressure. Biden has carried on very similar policies to Trump. There's been great continuity there. But remember, Iran is a very big country. It's got a huge industrial base, currently suffering a terrible epidemic. It's got the worst one in the region there for particular reasons. But um, in other respects, Iran is, uh, has, a, has great capacity. That's why it's under such attack from Israel and, and the US and, and the Saudis, or Israel and the Saudis, of course, hand in glove with the US there, basically. So the stuff about the Persian Gulf is really part of an ongoing low-level war there. It's, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this year, I think in March, that the Israelis had attacked over a dozen Iranian ships in the past two years. So there's been this low-level war, which has cost very few lives, but involved a lot of sabotage, basically. Now, the recent one off Oman, which they're blaming on Iran, but it's not, by no means clear that's the case, because there are plenty of enemies that Israel has in the Persian Gulf, you know, in Iraq, in Yemen, in in Syria, in, in Lebanon, for example. It's not entirely clear that Iran was responsible there, but the U.S. is hyping that up uh, as part of its propaganda war against Iran to try and paint Iran as the destabilizing force and therefore why the U.S. has to intervene or take some measures or get international support to take some measures against Iran. It's part of that background propaganda war. Also, a move to destabilize the talks about the nuclear issue. Well, I think that's just about dead. Um, I really think that uh, it wasn't getting anywhere, even under the previous government in Iran, which was a more liberal government than the current one, which is a more, they call it principalist in Iran, they call it hardline in, in the West. Uh, President Raisi is even less inclined to make any sort of concessions. Why should Iran make any concessions to the US, which created the agreement and then reneged on it completely under Trump? And Biden hasn't shown himself capable of, of actually going back to the agreement that he was part of six years ago. So I think that is dead, really. You see Iran now publicly making statements of concern about the upgrading of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And let's remember, on this day, the 9th of August, the anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki, the U.S. is the only country that has used atomic weapons in warfare, let alone used against a mainly civilian population. So Iran is now taking the high moral ground on that issue, pointing out, and, and Iran, let's remember, said that it denounces there's a, there's a fatwa in Iran against nuclear weapons because they are so necessarily indiscriminate weapons. They've always said they're not going to produce them. And the nuclear agreement was simply a, a device created at a certain point in time to try and disempower Iran and make it subject to some form of international control, international scrutiny. I think that's all disappearing now. I think that JCPOA nuclear agreement is pretty much dead in the water. But surely that agreement was also tied in with limiting the sanctions? Yeah, what the US calls sanctions, but what now in UN terms are better called unilateral coercive measures, illegal unilateral coercive measures or economic warfare. I think it's important to distinguish the two, really. Um, there is such a thing as legitimate international sanctions, legitimate under international law. They were applied against apartheid South Africa, for example. They could be a model for the use against apartheid Israel. 
but what's been employed against you know Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and Bolivia and Iran and Syria and Lebanon and, and Iraq are these unilateral coercive measures. Yes, to go back to the nuclear deal, the main incentive for Iran to take part in any of those sorts of talks to allow any sort of foreign surveillance of its nuclear industry was they thought that those sort of coercive measures were going to be lifted. Well, the US went in the opposite direction. They tore up the agreement and imposed dozens, this is Trump initially, dozens of new economic warfare measures against Iran. So there was really nothing, there was no, no more pressure to be applied to Iran from the US point of view. And Iran had complied so long as it could until it, the US didn't respond. And then Iran has gradually retreated from it under the terms of the agreement there. So the US sort of used up all its political capital, really. It's got nothing much more to offer, really. The Europeans for their part, claimed that they were unhappy with what, what Trump was doing, but they weren't able to act independently of the US. And since then, the other parties to the agreement, Russia and China, they've gone their separate ways. They're doing huge strategic agreements with Iran now. So the environment has changed quite a lot in the, in the last six years. But what is needed is vaccinations for the people? They have a vaccination program, but they have a lot of sanitary problems because of the huge the shrines and the pilgrimages you know people go to these shrines and I think I, I suspect this is an important part of the problem they go and they want to touch the shrines and kiss them and rub rosary beads on them and all those sorts of things so they've got a, a real sanitary problem with all of the pilgrimages and shrines across the country there and it's still raging very strongly there whereas it's on the western side of West Asia it's uh, it's not so bad they've got their own vaccine they are industrializing uh, one of the Cuban vaccines. So there's some important collaboration going on between Latin America and Iran at the moment. You know that Iran was helping Venezuela restart its refineries and Venezuela is now starting to improve its production capacity because it, Venezuela was still very technologically dependent on the outside despite many years of, of political independence. Whereas Iran had the capacity to help Venezuela restart its, its petroleum industry and the Cuban vaccine and a couple of unique Iranian vaccines are being produced now, and there is quite a strong vaccination program going ahead in Iran now. Still many hundreds of deaths a day still at that level. Is it an education program that's needed to encourage the people to change their ways a little to get, get on top of this? In some ways that's true. It's one of, the, one of those cases where the government, to some extent, is the head of the population. I mean, the government in Iran had told people, you know, to when they come to the shrines, um, this is not just people in Iran, but people from the region as well, you know, to bring their own mats and, you know, their own protective clothing and things like that. But it's been a very difficult thing. It's a, it's a complicated thing and um, it's very sad. There's still a lot of people dying every day. It is a question of education, but these are in some ways long-term questions. What's the way out of it then? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think it is a question of education, but and, and maybe that's not the only cause of it. I just mentioned that because I've been to Iran. I've seen how people really are very intimate with these, with these shrines, you know. So you've got thousands of people passing these shrines, touching them, kissing them, you know, like all of this thing which is very central to them. And, of course, the Iranian system is the, the, the republic, the Islamic republic is about Islamic civilization. They're not going to attack people's sentiments directly there in terms of how they regard the remains of, of saints and so on, but that I think that is a, a real problem that they have. Will the new government make any difference? 
Yeah, I think the new government will be less compromise, less inclined to compromise. Although the previous government really didn't, I don't think the previous government, the Rouhani government, which certainly wanted to have some sort of final prize out of their administration after two terms, because they were the so-called liberals. There were very committed to the idea of greater engagement with the West and um, economic liberal politics in many respects, foreign investment and so on, they wanted something, but the Biden administration was so demanding and so unprepared to back down from the Trump position that they really, with the weight of public opinion and everything else there, they couldn't really, they couldn't do it. Biden was simply incapable of offering anything vaguely acceptable there. Now, President Raisi and his administration are even less inclined to that. In fact, I don't think he's that interested in the process. I think the talks that were going on in Vienna are, are probably going to finish. Uh, maybe there will be some discussions in some other forum there, basically. But I think what the new government in Iran does represent in a way is a more forthright sort of uh, commitment to the resi what they call the resistance economy, which is, to a large extent, a focus on the import substitution and so on, but also to strengthen their alliances which had already begun under the previous administration with Russia and China and perhaps more distinctly their resistance axis in the region which with a, with a focus on supporting Palestine and all of the independent states and peoples of the region there. Racy's already made some statements on that. You know, they call them hardliners and conservatives and the principalists, as they're called in, in Iran, are conservative in many social respects, but they're also, they're not, economic liberals, that is to say they believe in planning, they believe in a strong role for the state in the economy. So there's a, they believe in city planning, for example, the, the big public infrastructure and so on. They're associated with those sorts of things, which is different to the way we think of conservatives in, in Western countries. You're talking about coercive measures. How much of that is operating in Lebanon at the moment? A lot, really. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a historical basis to it, which is the way in which that state was created as a sectarian state, you know, they call it confessionalist, but really everyone has to identify as a religion. Imagine someone comes to you and says, okay, Jan, we're going to put a badge on you. Your, your ID card is going to have you are a Catholic or you are a whatever it is, you know. Um, everyone is forced into these boxes there, and the system of government has sort of coalesced around that, so they have to have a Sunni prime minister and a Maronite Christian president, and the speaker of the parliament is Shia Muslim, and all this sort of rubbish, basically, which prevents the formation of a, of a strong body politic and has led to this, these sort of mafia-type sort of highly privatised economies, extremely different to Syria, which is in, in many respects, you know, they were the same country um, a few generations ago, but very, very different. So what the US has done, not like Syria where there's extremely strong coercive measures on Syria and, and anyone who wants to do business with Syria, but in Lebanon and also in Iraq, in the same way, they've done it on certain political groups within the country, which is just as illegal international law. And the impact is pretty much the same because Hezbollah, which is their main focus, that is to say the leadership of the resistance against Israel, the, the group, the Arab group that kicked Israel out of, Lebanon, out of Lebanon twice and has deterred Israeli attacks on Lebanon for the, for the last 15 years. And so is revered in the Arab world in many respects. They have been part of government for some years because there's a lot of popular support, not just for Hezbollah as a party, and it's a Shia party, 
it is a religious party, but because of their coalition that they're part of. So the US so-called sanctions, unilateral coercive measures, now apply to companies and businesses that are seen to be linked, according to the opinion of the US Secretary of Treasury, to Hezbollah. And for example, the former foreign minister, now head of the Free Patriotic Movement, which is the biggest progressive Christian bloc in the country, Gibran Basile, he is under personal sanctions now because he's been in a coalition. He's the leader of a party, the major party in the country, in a coalition government with Hezbollah. So although it started off as partial sanctions, effectively the whole country is damaged in that sort of way. And on top of that, they have a central bank which enacts the will of the US and France to a large degree. They protect the head of that central bank such that there would be a huge reaction from France and the US if any government tried to get rid of the head of the central bank. And the central bank was at the root of the financial collapse two years ago. So in brief, Lebanon is a huge mess, basically. And part of that mess is indeed these unilateral coercive measures from the US. Well, people aren't getting enough food now, are they? No, it's terrible. The majority of people in Lebanon are living in poverty. And and the difference from Lebanon to Iran or even Syria is that in Iran and Syria, they grow their own food. They've got a tradition of many decades of, not to say they don't import things, but they are big producers in terms of basic foodstuffs and even, you know, clothes and motor vehicles and lots of other things. Whereas Lebanon is a big trading hub. You know, it hasn't been ever a self-sufficient in in food, even though there are farmers there. It's been really a highly commercial culture. And with the currency semi-collapsed at the moment, only being revived with the hope of, for example, Iran says that they will sell fuel to Lebanon in Lebanese um, pounds, which would be a huge benefit. But there are sections of the country that are very anti-Iran, and so it's difficult for that to happen. This is where the sectarian nature of the Lebanese state blocks some advances. Basically, Lebanon is, was set up to be a type of an appendage to Europe, you know, Christians that looked west and saw themselves as part of European culture, you know, the Paris of the Mediterranean, all of this sort of thing. It's blown up in their faces because of the hostility of the, the Western powers and the, the belligerence of France and Britain and the US in the region trying to get rid of all of the independent states. And would you say that Israel is taking advantage of the situation in Lebanon? Absolutely. Every, every tragedy for Lebanon is something that they will take advantage of. I mean, in this respect, and strategically, I think it's best to see Israel as simply a colony or a, a, a forward post of the US. It was set up as a colony of Great Britain. It, in many respects, functions as a colony of the US, and they will take advantage of that, just as they did with Cuba. For example, the US, you see, if there's some misfortune, uh, even with the the pandemic, you'd see that, for example, Cuba has produced um, two fully tested and uh, three more vaccines against COVID. But because of the economic blockade on Cuba, they haven't got enough syringes and protective clothing and so on. So they're, But the US will, will not lift its blockade measures on Cuba or Syria or Iran or Venezuela or the countries that it's targeting, basically. So it's the US systematically exploits the misfortunes to hurt, deliberately hurt the people of those countries. You remember about three years ago, I think it was, that the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said that if the government of Iran wanted Iranian people to eat, they would do what we say. 
basically it was as crude and as blunt as that. It's clearly a violation of international law, but they don't care. They keep calling it sanctions. Unfortunately, people keep repeating that word. Um, they've succeeded in getting people to repeat that word as though it is some sort of judicious measure for some wrongdoing that they've done. No, it's economic warfare. It's siege warfare. Meanwhile, in occupied Palestine, the, the death toll rises. Children as young as 12 dying on the streets. People, children of all ages dying because this regime in, in Palestine, this apartheid regime, which is in recent years we've got now three or four reports affirm, including Israeli reports, affirming the apartheid character of this regime because the Israelis control it all. There is nothing that they respect about a Palestinian state or Palestinian territories. It's falling very, very clearly into the South African case in the 80s with um, just the fig leaf of the idea of two states still persisting because the two-state idea is what kept the liberal Zionists um, alive in that mist. And now that's disappeared because effectively, you know, the colonisation of the West Bank and the effective Israeli control of all of the borders, the economy and everything, the result is you've got half the people there are non-citizens effectively. More than half the people are non-citizens. They don't have rights. They're, you look at the East Jerusalem issue at the moment, the evictions going on there, they're starting to offer some sort of compromise people to be residents in their own homes, recognise as residents. There's no concept of these people as citizens having any rights in that sort of situation. So that flows on to everything else, whether it's arrests or detentions or killings, the, the fact that you've got armed groups now behind these so-called settlers who go in to rob people's homes, to drive them out of certain areas with stones, painting signs on doors in East Jerusalem to, to show these are the people to be driven out of their homes and which the homes the settlers can take over. Isn't this what the German Nazis were doing to Jewish Germans back in the 1930s? These pogroms that are very openly recorded and, of course, yes, the slaughter of children, that's all part of it. They're not considered as citizens and that's at the root of the problem there. And I think that probably the Western states will be the last to recognise this, but like South Africa, I think there's going to be a strengthening of the international genuine sanctions against this apartheid system. That's the only real solution for the slaughter of children you mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Dr Tim Anderson. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else, I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far-right wing now, but she might be quite left, she might just be a spiritual hippie type, but there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings, there's almost a hippie-like quality to it, particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q, and it's getting people in there, but Q is not just a conspiracy theory, is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months, so your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
On the program last week, we reported on the jailing of US killer drone whistleblower Daniel Hale. Today, it's an independent journalist, Craig Murray. He is the first person to be jailed in Britain for contempt of court for their journalism in half a century, for which he will be in prison for eight months. We might not know a great deal about the former UK ambassador to Uzbekistan, following which he became the rarest of things, a whistleblowing diplomat, exposing the British government's collaboration together the US in Uzbekistan's torture regime. There is more. But we do know him as a supporter of Julian Assange, one of the few journalists to report in detail the arguments made by Assange's legal team in his extradition hearings in London. Activist and broadcaster Jacob Gregg knows well of his work for Julian, and I asked him first if he knew about Craig's background in investigative journalism. Obviously, before the whole Julian scenario, I'd heard of him once, but um, just following his blog and his, his Twitter account, he was one of the few British diplomats who stood up against the lies of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq back in, back in the day, um, which is the only time I'd heard of him. He was um, a diplomat in, uh, where was it? Uzbekistan. The British ambassador to Uzbekistan. He was speaking openly then about the, the British government pushing for war when there was no um, no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. When did his blog start talking about Julian? Well, it was in the Equipment. I think he met with Julian, yeah. So but he was definitely talking about it. So you got to know about him more during the extradition trial? Yeah, he was, he was one, of the, um, one of the few journalists allowed to report on the trial. And so he gave a daily blog, and it was absolutely, what can I say, it was absolutely necessary. It was one of the few blogs that actually went through chapter and verse, gave almost verbatim quotes of what was happening in the courtroom, Provided links, he was he was an invaluable resource during the trial, not just to to myself, but also to a whole lot of other activists and even people connected to the trial were finding out most most of what they found out about it and was being able to follow Craig Murray. And as you said, there were very few who were allowed to be in that courtroom. That's right, and Craig himself wasn't often in the courtroom um, because, you know, we've spoken before, Jan, about what a sham trial it was, and um, they did things like putting um, people up on the fifth floor, and they had, a, they had a, a number of seats available in the courtroom, and three or four of those seats were always there for the government, for the, the government or the royalty, to um, send people who want to witness that were never um, occupied, yet nonetheless sent up to the fifth floor with a broken-down lift where they could watch a tattoo of what was happening that, and um, was able to, to update his blog and tweet out the note. It was hard from the room up until he came downstairs and all that kind of stuff. 
He's been a thorn in the side for a long time. How many people do you reckon read his blog and found out the true story? It's hard to say, but I reckon thousands and thousands of people uh, were reading his blog daily. There were a couple of times that obviously the internet traffic slowed it down somewhat. But but when you read other um, other journalists and other papers, a lot of them were, or not papers anymore, of course, but um, internet sites, a lot of them were quoting Craig Murray's blog. Have you followed what's happening to him now that he's actually going to jail? Yeah, he's been in jail. He's I don't know which jail he's in, but he handed himself in a couple of days ago, um, Wednesday. What happened was... He was following the case of Alex Salmon, who was a previous um, First Minister of Scotland, up on a number of sexual assault charges, all of which he's been totally exonerated of, I've, I've got to say, to start with. In the course of following, following that trial, which he was claiming was a witch hunt on Alex Salmon, and um, looks like it was, he, he tweeted out proceedings of the courts and while because they were sexual assault cases it's what's the word it's illegal to print anything which would identify the the victims I guess is the word and he didn't do that but he was charged because he wrote things in such a way and referred to people in such a way as any as that the court determined that anybody who knew the victims or were familiar with the case or their workplaces may have been able to identify them from the tweets. So while the official record is that he um, exposed the women complainants, he didn't actually. He was very careful about that. And but the, the court that was trying to get the British legal system, which was trying to get him for a whole range of reasons, used this thing they called jigsaw evidence that he provided parts of a jigsaw that could have been used. Now, strangely enough, other people did also. Um, and a lot of people reckon that they got more information about who the women were from the BBC than they did from Craig Murray's blog or Craig Murray's tweets. BBC or The Times or any of the other papers have not been charged. It's an attack on Craig Murray in particular and what's been come to known as citizen journalists in, in, in general that's been used. And, it's, and the judge in, in charge of both Craig Murray's case and Alex Salmon's case, um, Lady Dorian, has actually said a number of things which has gone to the gone to prove the fact that independent journalists, bloggers, twitters, etc., are held to a different level in law to places like the New York Times, the Guardians, and the BBCs. What you're pointing out is that there are many similarities between Julian Assange and Craig Murray. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to start with, and, and not only with Craig Murray, but with Alex Salmond, who was the Scottish First Minister, there seems to be a thing in British justice now where it's easy to vilify somebody 
based on a whole lot of spurious allegations of a sexual nature, and it gets to the point where even once you get those allegations into court, that's one thing, but even when those allegations are dismissed and shown to be whatever, the fact that someone has been to court and the fact that someone has reported on the court is now enough in itself to, let's just say, it's the, the right-wing British establishment's version of cancel culture. We're going further now. We're getting to a point where um, Lady Dorian and uh, the Scottish judiciary, judiciary are calling for um, sexual assault and sexual allegations, sexual crimes to be heard by a judge alone without a jury. And what that means for a free trial and presumption of innocence and the rest of it is outrageous. There's another similarity too, that both men, Julian and Craig, are very unwell and jail could finish them. Yeah, well, with Julian, I guess he's unwell because of the incarceration in the in the Ecuadorian embassy for so long where he wasn't able to move around or get exercise in addition to his, you know, normal respiratory illness and other health issues. But what made him unwell was the incarceration. Craig is a little bit unwell. He's 62 years old. He's, um, you know, seems to have not a... He seems to have been a little bit unfit, let's just say, approach life with... It's, I don't know him, but it looks to me, and from what I've read and what I've seen, it looks to me that he's approached life and his health with the, the same laissez-faire attitude that I have, to be perfectly frank about it. So he finds himself 62 years old and a little bit unwell. He's already in jail? He's already in jail. He turned himself in on Wednesday. He's got a friend to keep his blog updated, but... He's been silenced, basically. And another important part of the connection with the Julian case is that had Craig not been in jail over the next few weeks, he would have travelled to Spain to be a witness in the case against UC Global, which was spying on Julian Assange in the embassy. You're in Sydney now, and you've been there for a few weeks. You're working with a group called Justice Action. Justice action. Yes, I am. Look, um, <clears throat> some people might be aware of this, but um, I've been involved with justice action in on the fringes of it for many years now, probably 30-something, well, definitely 30-something years. I was passing through Sydney quite, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, just is, the night, the day before the lockdown was announced, I was in Sydney, and rather than leave that day not knowing the lockdown was going to be announced, I am. I thought I'd call in on my friends who were having a bit of a Friday night get together, the Justice Action crew, and of course I stayed the night. And next thing you know, we were locked down. So I've been stuck here for six weeks so far, and it looks like a, a couple more months to go. And Justice Action is a organisation founded and mainly maintained by people who have been involved in the prison system 
and advocating for the rights of prisoners, forced mental health detainees, etc. over the years and campaigning on issues like prisoners' rights to access education, rights to access law and legal information and, um, of course, deaths in custody. And, of course, forced medications as well, forced medications of, of prisoners and mental health patients. So they've had a few victories along the way. It's not an organisation you'll hear a lot about, but it's one of those that um, keeps plugging away, as I say, for more than 30-odd years now at, at, at improving the lives of people inside. And my particular project with it at the moment is we produce a newspaper called Just Us, which goes to every prisoner in Australia, in every jail, in every jurisdiction. We fought for that right. Yeah, so every every so often, at least once a year, we put a newspaper out to every every prisoner inside, editing and compiling that. Is that censored? It's self-censored. Um, obviously, it, it has to be approved by the various departments of correctional services, and so we're not going to put anything in it which is calling for riots or insurrection, but we are providing basic legal information and a few odds and ends and stories, how to cope with life inside, a few quirky stories of things that have happened in prisons and things like that. This this year's lead, what's the word, um, theme. Everyone has a theme, and, and this one's theme is about prisoners' rights to access law, which is not just about getting adequate legal representation, but all the different ways they have a right to access law while they are inside, which a lot of prisoners don't know because it's, you know, everyone knows they've got a right to a lawyer, of course, but not everyone knows the various methods and avenues they can use while they are inside to, to access legal advice and representation and their rights to appeals and all different kinds of things. So what we do is we provide that information on a state-by-state -state basis because it differs in every jurisdiction, and we do so without all the legalese so that prisoners, most prisoners could understand it. Well, you might be in lockdown in Sydney, but your Friday program is still online. Yeah, it still goes out every Friday. I um, I broadcast five o'clock Friday evenings on um on three CR, of course. Uh, last Friday, which would be the what is it, the sixth of August. I've done a couple of stories on military issues. Before that, we spoke about the the philosophy of the lockdowns, and um, I think this week coming up, I'm going to be starting a bit of a series on the road to war with China. So that's going to be interesting. Great to talk to you. As always, Jen, thanks a lot. And um, stay sane into lockdown. You've got down there in Melbourne, mate. We certainly have. Jacob Gregg, journalist, broadcaster, and don't forget to have a listen every Friday at 5 on 3CR for the Friday Rave. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots.
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. I speak on an irregular basis with members of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War about the important issues of war and peace and efforts to both educate about and be active in these issues from a medical perspective. This week is no different as my guest is Dr Sue Wareham, OAM, General Practitioner, retired, co-founder of ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017, and also in her capacity as the present president of MAPW. So there are three areas of many which your members are active in at the moment. But before we talk about them, can we look back to the beginnings of MAPW? Who those were then at that time? and what they envisaged for the organisation. MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, we're actually having our 40th anniversary this year. So we formed in 1981. And we formed with the primary purpose of the abolition of nuclear weapons. And there was a big global um, nuclear disarmament movement at the, at the time. And we're part of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. So that has remained our primary goal, and particularly at the moment, working for the promotion of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is now in force legally throughout the world. So nuclear weapons have always been our primary target, specifically getting rid of them. But in association with that, we work pretty vigorously on a wide range of issues that relate to armed conflict generally and the factors that tend to promote armed conflict or make it more likely. And as you can imagine, that's a very broad agenda to be working with. But we we intervene at a, a number of levels, and we'll, we'll talk about some of them today. Um, but we, we intervene in um, very specific areas of gross human rights abuses and misuse of armed force in, in that way. We, we will often intervene there. We do quite a bit of work on the arms trade, especially in, in Australia, but also globally, but looking at Australia's role in the arms trade, promoting weapons exports, that sort of thing. There's a lot more, a bit of a snapshot. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, today we've got three topics, and the first is one which listeners to this program are familiar with, and that's Julian Assange fighting for his life and his freedom in a high-security British jail. You were part of a meeting of doctors for Assange, which, which the issue is you believe that he may not survive the appeal process. Who are the members of doctors for Assange and what work have you and others been involved with over a, a period of time? Well, Doctors for Assange is a global network of medical doctors 
and there are hundreds of us in different places around the world, UK, Australia, US, but quite a number of other countries as well. And the work that we've been doing is primarily, well, monitoring what's what's happening and promoting this knowledge of the gross undermining of our democracy and of Julian Assange's human rights and his health rights. So promoting knowledge about those things, um, but also intervening with letters, appeals to the relevant governments, to the UK government, um, because he's been held in Belmarsh Prison, high security prison in London. Also to the Australian government, which has been shockingly really out of the picture on this um, in relation to the rights of one of our own citizens. And also most recently there was a letter to the US to President Biden urging him to intervene and to stop this farcical process um, which is really undermining democracy for all of us. So intervening at a number of levels. It's hard to imagine the health issues that he must be facing now after all those years in the embassy and now in a high-security terrorist-designed prison for a man who hasn't been found guilty of anything. Yes, that's absolutely right. And we assume that people who have been held in a, a prison under very, very strict um, really cruel conditions. Um, we would assume that he's been found guilty of something. But as you said, Jan, he hasn't. And he was, um, earlier in the year, the US tried to get him extradited over there and, that, and the UK judge denied permission for that on health grounds. Uh, and to, to her credit, that he, although there's appeal going on over that. So, yes, the fact that all of this farcical stuff is going on for a man who's uh, not been convicted of anything and yet he is still held in high security. It's just terrible and it's a, a warning sign for, uh, as intended, it's a warning sign for uh, anybody uh, anybody who might be thinking of disclosing embarrassing facts as Julian Assange did. Just talk a little bit about the meeting with the international doctors and and, and their thoughts on what's happening. The international doctors are adamant that Julian Assange's health rights need to be upheld, um, of course, and that's a, that's a basic in, in any situation that we all have a, a right to health care and to have our, uh, have our rights in that, in that respect upheld. So there are, we've been highlighting the, the impacts of the torture that Julian Assange has been subject to um, the psychological torture of prolonged solitary confinement and very restricted access to the outside world, including to his own legal team. So highlighting these things, and as you said, um, the impact of these things over years and years um, is just terrible. And I mean, solitary confinement and denial of contact, these are not... Is not a sort of mild form of torture. This has a very devastating impact on the, the human human psyche and and how how the brain and the emotions function. It's just pretty shocking that this is done by governments who say that they uphold democracy and and human rights.
contact or any contact with members of the Australian government to put your point of view? There's certainly been, uh, by way of these uh, letters that I mentioned to the Australian government, we've certainly been party to that. And we've been extremely pleased to see that some Australian parliamentarians with whom we do, do have contact have been speaking out for the rights of Julian Assange. And it's interesting that it's really a, it's not a party political thing. There have been members who are speaking out for Assange from the coalition, from Labor, um, a number of independents from the Greens. So it's really across the political spectrum. And yes, we've been having contact and encouraging these people to keep speaking out because that's what needs to happen. And it's not just, I mean, it's, it is Julian's health, but it's also the rights of journalism freely to apply their, their journalism, I suppose, worldwide. Yes, it is. And you can't help conclude in looking at this whole sorry process that that's the very purpose of treating Julian Assange like a criminal. It is to criminalise the reporting of anything that governments don't like or that shows them in a bad light because one of Julian Assange's most um, shocking reports, revelations, uh, publications was in relation to material, video, video material that showed the US in Iraq committing what can only be regarded as war crimes, killing innocent bystanders. So the fact that this information, which is so important for us to have, to know what is done in our name, the fact that that is going to be, if the governments, the complicit governments have their way and other journalists get scared off, and who wouldn't be, quite frankly, if this process continues, then we're going to be denied a lot of information which we really have a right to know, which we need to know, and which is important for our democracy. So it's uh, you're right, there's a lot more hanging on it than the personal human rights and health rights of Julian Assange. And time is running out for Julian, really, because his health situation is, is dire, as his father has stated, yet these governments just hanging in there, it seems, waiting maybe for him to die so we can get rid of him. Yes, his health situation is pretty terrible. And the reason that the judge in London denied extradition to the US was basically on health grounds. And she said quite significantly that because of the conditions in US prisons, and I'm not sure if she used the word oppressive, but the, um, the message was that the conditions in US prisons are so, let's use the word oppressive because it's accurate, that he would be at serious risk of suicide if that were to happen. So it's good that for the moment he has not been extradited, that his conditions in London are still appalling, and the US government is appealing, and there's an appeal hearing coming up in another week or so. So we'll be watching that carefully. It's a pity that she didn't mention the conditions in Belmarsh, isn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, but that's been monitored and observed by other people. But yes, that was left out of it. The second issue, Sue, one also we've talked about for a long, long time is the Australian War Memorial Redevelopment Plans. And even though 
partly it is happening, people are still campaigning to stop it. Can you explain what the situation is at the moment? Yes, the situation at the moment is that the National Capital Authority, which has to approve the plans, National Capital Authority approved some weeks ago what they call early works. So they've approved the demolishing of Anzac Hall, which is one of the most controversial aspects. They've approved the removal of around 140 or more trees, many of them mature, beautiful eucalypts. And they've approved the sort of ripping up the ground in front of the memorial in preparation for a new entrance and also a newer and larger parade ground out the front. So that's all been approved and that uh, work has started on that. Trees have come down and Zach Hall is in the process of being uh, demolished. But the, uh, and this, this really highlights another, I seem, seem to be using the word farcical a lot, but another farcical uh, process here, which is that the National Capital Authority has not yet approved the rebuild. So they've said, yes, you can knock down these parts, you can pull out all the trees, you can dig a big, a big hole out the front, but they haven't yet approved what is going to happen after that. So an inquiry and National Capital Authority agency, sorry, um, has just initiated a further inquiry, which is on the main works. So we're all invited now, um, I think submissions open in a week or two, we're invited to submit on the main main works. Now, this is the fact that the NCA, when they were uh, approving the so-called early works, there were about 600 submissions to that. And the vast, vast majority of them, literally about 99% of them, were against this whole thing going ahead and yet the NCA approved that. So the early works were approved. So if anybody would have faith now that the National Capital Authority is going to take a serious look at this main works application and decide it on merit and have a look at all the submissions and the overwhelming opposition to this proposal, if anybody uh, considers that that's going to happen, then they're uh, very much an optimist. I mean, what, what we're saying is that this, this is a done deal and it probably has been for quite some time. But we are still having input into this process and the reason we're doing it is that it's really important that this is all recorded, what's happening, who's, who's saying what, uh, what level of opposition is being absolutely marginalised and, and overruled. It's going to be recorded for posterity, the role of the role of the NCA, the role of the War Memorial Director and Council. All of those things are going to be re recorded. And you might say, well, what's the point of that? But it is important that our history is accurately laid down and that people looking back when they see what a shocking glorification of war the memorial is going to become, uh, even when that becomes a reality, then there will be recorded that no, this is not something that the people of Australia wanted. The Auditor-General, the Federal Auditor-General, has become involved. What is her his role? Well, not definitely involved yet, but certainly interested. And there was a report several weeks ago, which was very pleasing that the, the audit office, as you say, the Auditor General, is very interested in this project and how it's played out. 
and um, is considering it as part of their works for the coming year. So as far as we're aware, the Auditor-General hasn't yet decided on whether the War Memorial Project will be part of their work for the coming year. But we have hopes that, that it will be. And MAPW, um, with, uh, with colleagues, especially Heritage Guardians, which has been opposing, opposing this whole thing, we've put together quite a bit of documentation of the process and what a terrible process it's been thus far with chapter, verse, who said what, when was it said, all of that. We've got, got all of that together. It is on the MAPW website and we'd encourage people to spread that round, use it as, as widely as they like. And we are encouraging parliamentarians to take this up with the audit office uh, too because um, it's important that they hear from as many people as possible uh, about this so that an audit of this process does get underway. And that will help greatly in what I mentioned earlier about the importance of recording all of this. And of course, as you said, to look at that real reason or one of the real reasons why MAPW are objecting to this is the, the emphasis on the glorification of war. Yes, it is. There have been quite a number of different, well, lots of different sectors of society have been opposed to this proposal for, for, for different reasons, and that's good. There's sort of strength in diversity in a way, people coming at it from different angles. For MAPW, and I think for a lot of other people too, our primary motivation has been, as you said, that a huge expansion, which is grandiose in style and architecture and will dwarf the commemorative aspects of the memorial and also seems to be specifically designed to accommodate a lot of war machinery, tanks, fighter planes, bits of submarines, all of that sort of thing. So um, all of that is going to greatly detract from the and really destroy the memorial as we know it. And the memorial's primary function is commemoration and that's going to be pretty much dwarfed by what's unfolding at the moment. So yes, that has been MAPW's reason for being strongly involved in this campaign. The third issue I'd like you to talk about today, Sue, is concerning the arrest last month by the Israeli forces of a prominent health professional in the occupied Palestine West Bank. Yes, and this was pretty awful too. There was the arrest, as you said, of Ms. Shatha O'Day, and she was the director of the health work committees in Palestine. And the health work committees are one of the major non-government, i.e. civil society organisations that's promoting health for the, not only promoting, but actually providing um, healthcare provider for the people of Palestine and especially for marginalised groups and uh, they played a, a significant role in trying to counter the COVID pandemic in Palestine, the response there, they've spoken out for women's healthcare, reproductive, sexual and reproductive health, mental health services. So they've provided um, a number of really key bits of the healthcare sector in Palestine. One should add that because Israel is the occupying power, then it's actually the Israeli government's responsibility to look after the healthcare of the Palestinian people, but that's not, not happening. 
so a lot of that has fallen on civil society. So Shazara Day was arrested several weeks ago. She's been held in prison and again she's been a little similar to the Julian Assange story. Access to visits is extremely limited. I'm not sure if she's if she's having any access to medical care for her is extremely limited. Legal support is extremely limited. So all of these attacks on her human rights, but in the process, it's much more than, same as with Julian Assange, in the process, it's much more than her personal human rights, even though they're extremely important. It's really an attack on Palestinian society in the essential field of healthcare. So it's, again, whether it's done for intimidation of other civil society organisations in Palestine, whether it's just to cut down, let's say, the power of a good example, people who are doing really good work. It's just ex- extremely worrying that um, that this, is, this has happened. So one of the movements that Shasra Day, global movement that she was involved in is the People's Health Movement, which is a really, really important uh, grassroots global movement um, around the world. And she she was uh, strongly involved in that movement. So People's Health Movement globally have initiated a letter which MAPW and, of course, very many others have signed to the WHO, to the World Health Organization, asking the Director General of the WHO to intervene for her release. So we're basically calling for the release of Sasha O'Day, but also calling for the protection of healthcare in the occupied territories, which, as this example illustrates, is really under attack. That's unconscionable. It just can't be allowed to happen. Well, that letter went out to him about a month ago now. There's been no reply. Not aware of any reply. Uh, yes, it is about a month. Um, I'm not aware of any any reply thus far. But um, we'll we'll keep on. I mean, examples like this, uh, we can't afford to forget these because individual rights are under attack, and that's important for the individuals concerned. Of course, it's devastating for them, but there are lessons for the rest of us too. That if anyone's Uh, rights are under attack, then all of our rights are at risk. And that is just extraordinarily worrying. Thank you once again, Sue. Thank you very much, Jan. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Dr Sue Ware is the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And do have a look at their webpage to find out more about the issues she's been talking about today. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees 
still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. On the program last week, Philippines, Australia, human rights activist May Kotsakis spoke about further moves by the President of the Philippines, Duterte, to circumvent peace talks and maintain absolute power. She talked about the opposition parties getting together to field just one candidate between them for the positions of President and Vice-President in order to defeat Duterte in the election next year. This is where we pick up the interview with May. So that is one. Next is uh, the people's power, like what happened in 1986 during Aquino Marcos after the election, because it was very obvious that the, that Marcos cheated the election, so the people went into the streets and won't stop until Marcos left the country. And then Corazon Aquino became the president. So that's another, just in case that, uh, you know, Duterte cheated the uh, presidency, uh, well, the election. But those are two sort of options. And then the, I don't think the people will stop. The people will you continue to uh, to protest, and with the current formation that the opposition is making, uh, you know, forming one group, one candidate, there is really a very big chance. And if the thirty um, cheat the election, then there will be more people protesting <laughs> against him. Is there also likely to be targeting of the candidates from the opposition to stop them standing? That is very likely. Every election in the Philippines, there is a killing of candidates or supporters. But even the military in the Philippines is sort of divided. Well, there are some reports that there are generals who are now opposing Duterte because Duterte is very pro-China and many military personnel are pro-U.S. We can't even be sure that the whole sort of machinery of the government will support Duterte because the other candidates, the other opposition, they have also their own loyal people, you know. So if the ruling class is already split and the opposition now is uniting against Duterte, so it is a matter of there is still a danger, of course, because Duterte is still is the the head of the military, the president is the commander in chief of the military, of course. So there is still a danger that there's always danger. But normally, the incumbent or the government do not target the higher up uh, candidates or the, you know, they target the candidates from on the lower position and also the supporters. There is always a danger in the Philippines, even now, even not during election. You mentioned China there. Would you expect or would there be a possibility that either the United States or China would interfere in some way in these elections? We uh, knew that the United States always interfere. They always, uh, you know, um, have a pick of the candidate and they support financially and politically. That's why all the presidents in the Philippines, except Duterte, the very first travel that they do after the election is to visit the United States to present themselves in the Congress of the United States government. 
So we knew from the very beginning, even before, that the United States always supports a candidate that they prefer. You know, They have a lot at stake, of course. They have a lot of interest in the Philippines, and they have controlled the Philippines for a very long time. I am not quite sure about China, but a lot of people are saying that China will probably financially support uh, Duterte. Can you explain or detail the, the extent of the U.S. maybe military in the Philippines at the moment and the economic power that they have? The Philippines and the United States has a lot of treaties, agreements, which is renewed. You know, um, it, it, Some of the treaties are actually very old, but it is still in place. And also the, the U.S. The U.S. military are open in the Philippines with this. Uh, we have the EDCA, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. We have the, uh, the Visiting Forest Agreement, which is the BFA. And those agreements were actually uh, temporarily sort of halted, but they are still on at the moment. So with that agreement, uh, the United States military personnel and military officers can come to the Philippines any time, any place. And even when the Subic Bay, you know, the, um, the military base was closed in 1991, but with these, these two agreements, it's even worse because military, U.S. military per- personnel then can go any place in the Philippines. It's no longer contained to the military base. They have the whole country as their base. So they can come anytime. They don't have any sort of responsibility. That's why we had that when the, one of the soldiers, U.S. soldiers, killed the woman, and there, there was lots of clamor because he was uh, suddenly he, he was uh, sort of he, he was gone. So the Philippine government cannot even prosecute the perpetrator. So that's why it is very difficult unless unless there is a very strong president who is willing actually to end all these agreements, who is going to renew the agreements, who is willing to post really the United States, then the Philippines will always be the same year after year. That's why, that is the reason why there is a revolution in the Philippines, because no president is strong enough or is willing actually to be independent. They are always submissive to foreign powers. So that's why the people have no other choice but to report, to fight. But from what you've said about the power of the United States in the Philippines, the whipping up of the fear of China doesn't make a great deal of sense to many people, or does it? Uh, because, yes, um, the, the West Philippine Sea, you mean? The fear, you know, Ch- you know, China's going to do this, China's going to do that. Uh, I, I think because of uh, what has China done to the Philippines, like the occupation of the West Philippine Sea, which is very is already been decided by the International Tribunal, the UNCLOS, the United Nations uh, Law of the Sea, United Nations Council on the Law of the Sea. It's already been decided that that area belongs to the Philippines. It is within the economic zone of the Philippines, but China has sort of ignored that, ignored that uh, decision, ignored international law, and is still occupy the West Philippine Sea. And, and, and Duterte has just sort of agreed to it. You know, even though the Philippines already won under, 
under Aquino, um, Noynoy Aquino, where it was presented to the International Tribunal. So the Philippines already won that uh, case, but then now Duterte has just surrendered and surrendered it to China. People, Filipinos, really get angry because even the Filipino fishermen who used to fish in the area is being attacked by the Chinese personnel there. They're being driven away. They have no right now. They cannot now earn a living on the land or on the sea, on the waters that is supposed to belong to the country. And they are being driven away by a foreigner who is claiming that, which they don't have the right to claim. That's why I think uh, the United States is a bit worried because that area is actually a passage, passage to the to the east, that, that area in the West Philippine Sea. That's why a lot of even Australia now is, uh, you know, uh, that's why Australia is supporting the United States. And um, I, I actually don't know what is the position of Australia in this, you know, because Australia is supporting Duterte the Philippine government. Well, finally, May, the issue, as you've said, is the fight back by the people. That's the issue now, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the Filipinos have been fighting since uh, under Marcos. So there is no change on that position. And uh, the, the, uh, the demand of the Philippine government that they will only resume the peace talk if the New People's Army lay down their arms, that will never happen. Because they have that agreement, you know, they have the, uh, what they call that, the Hague Declaration, that they have principle of mutual respect and reciprocity. So they cannot actually expect the other party to lay down their arms while they have their military might, isn't it, in the peace negotiation. So the 30, well, all the presidents uh, has been demanding that we will only talk to you, we will only resume peace talk if you lay down your arms. But that is not a, you know, um, qualifying in any peace negotiations of two parties that both have an army or armed, uh, you know, uh, section. So the people will continue to to fight, you know. The activists will continue to protest, uh, will continue to expose the human rights violations, other atrocities of the government, because... I think the Filipino people has no other choice. The Filipinos now, Philippines is a very rich country. It has a lot of natural resources. It is very rich in gold and other uh, other minerals, cobalt, copper. But people are very poor. Majority of the people are poor. So there is a need to change that. And you know, in the uh, in the peace negotiation, the Next agenda, which is supposed to be discussed, is the CASER, which is the second agenda, which is the Comprehensive Agreement on Social and Economic Reforms. I think that is the sticking point of, on the government. They don't want that agreement because it is going actually to have a, a reform on economy, on social and economic. So they don't want to relinquish, of course, their power. They don't want to relinquish their riches, you know, their wealth. They are controlled. That's why when it comes to that, because that has, the, the other agreements has already been signed earlier, 1990s. And this is the second agenda. The first agenda has already been signed in 1990s. And this is the second agenda, the CASER, 
and every president, when it comes to that, that they become serious on discussing that, then they will withdraw from the peace negotiation. The, I think the Filipinos will continue to pursue. Okay, mate, we'll talk again. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jan. We certainly will. That's May Kostakis, human rights activist from the Philippines, now living in Australia. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.